0: If you have worked in an environment that's tense or your boss is not particularly sensitive or maybe they're a little overbearing, maybe even a bit tyrannical, you may in your own mind have a a kind of a negative view of authority. And this is true of all of life. If you grew up in a home where your dad was too heavy-handed, you may have a negative view of authority. If you grew up in a church where the pastoral leadership was tyrannical or dictatorial or overly legalistic, you may have a negative view of authority. If you live in a country, this is purely theoretical, that is governed by tyrants, you may have a negative view of authority. And as a result of that, you may approach God and in your mind, you're like, yeah, I know God is God. I know he's a king of kings and Lord of lords, but in my soul, I'm kind of resistant to his authority. And we we come up with all sorts of fanciful ways to get around this. For example, we may hear the word of God preached and the preacher, be it myself or someone else, is clearly articulating what God has said, but we don't like it. But we wouldn't want to say we don't like it God, so we just don't like the preacher. We just have a natural bent to resist authority and the broken world within which we live certainly doesn't help that. But folks, the reality is God is our boss. And if he says jump, we say, how high, Lord? If he challenges our language, our thinking, our actions, our attitudes, we need to be open and receptive to his rebuke in our lives. Now, the good thing about God is that God is always benevolent. He's always good. He, 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 there's no rule in the scripture that is meant to destroy you. No Christian has ever legitimately said, I obeyed God and now I regret it. We regret it when we don't obey God. But God's rules, when we receive them, even if in our flesh we're like, I don't understand it or I don't like it or I don't like the preacher that preached it. When we receive it, we're always blessed by it. This is something that was challenged in Eden. Did God really say? God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. Every sin fundamentally is a downplaying or denial of the goodness and benevolence of God. And God is robbed of glory when we sin and, and we are robbed of blessing when we sin. The Bible is pretty clear on this that if you've not yet bowed your knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you're just in it, delaying the inevitable because there's going to come a time when every atheist and every agnostic and every peddler of false religion will bow the knee and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The book of Daniel, which has been the subject of our study for the past few weeks, was given to God's people to remind us and actually to remind the unbeliever that every person will one day bow to God and recognize his lordship every person. And this message was intended to instill confidence in the exiles in Babylon. You see, this backstory is, is that in 586, Nebuchadnezzar had gone down to Israel and he'd sacked the land and he'd taken the Southern tribes up into captivity into Mesopotamia, some 1000 kilometers away. And there they stayed for 70 years. And during this period of exile, some of the young men, some of the noblemen, some of the intellectuals, were invited to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, and Daniel was among them. And there's several chapters to the book of Daniel. The latter five deal primarily with, with prophecy. But in the opening chapters, we have the narrative of Daniel and his friends being in Nebuchadnezzar's court and being select, selected for service and taking a principled stand and still being selected for service. And that's all written in Hebrew. And then chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are written in Aramaic which, so that everyone could hear. So those chapters in particular contain messages for both the proverbial believer and pagan alike. They're for everybody. And the message of chapter 4 is a fascinating one as well that would have galvanized the faith of the believer and would have caused the unbeliever to be shocked at how powerful the true and living God was, because in this narrative account, God takes the most powerful man, probably on the planet at the time, and humbles him in a very dramatic way. And the passage reminds us then that no matter who you are, no matter what color your skin is, no matter how many degrees you have on your wall no matter how much status or prestige you have, no matter how much power you have, God is your boss too. Don't forget that. God does delegate authority. We're pro-authority. We do believe in properly functioning authority. We believe in authority within the home, within the church, and within the state. We believe in authority. But there are always limits and boundaries. Your Your job description has limits attached to it. If you're the father or the husband of your wife or you're a pastor or you're a prime minister, there are boundaries and limits to your authority. And when you either transgress your authority, claiming to be God, wielding authority that you don't have, or finding yourself arrogant and pompous and conceited because you think you're something special, God will humble you. So listen to these words from the most powerful man of the time. This is circa 6th century BC. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages, this is Daniel 4, that dwell in all the earth. He's literally able to say that because he's governing the civilized world at the time. He he was the the leader of the most powerful nation. They conquered all sorts of other nations. They brought... People groups from all over the world and into Mesopotamia. Oh by the way, this king, along with all other Mesopotamian kings, claimed the title, literally, "King of Kings and Lord of Lords." That was a regal title that they claimed. This is the guy who's speaking right now. He's speaking to the whole world. He says, "Peace be multiplied to you." It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders. Which refer to both the natural and supernatural events of this narrative, respectively, that the Most High has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. It's like, pardon? The tyrant is saying this? What happened? Well, previous to this, he was humbled in the fiery furnace incident. He was humbled when he tried to set up this ridiculous statue and no one bowed down to it and God rescued his own. But there's another narrative here that he is referring to. So this is preceding what we're about to read. And it is, if you think about it, chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, this is the center of this Aramaic section, the pinnacle, the climax, where the godless king, acknowledged as a true and living God. Like who would have expected that? Talk about a plot twist. So these words were written after the remaining events that we're going to read in the chapter and they record his recollection of events that took place as recorded by Daniel. Now, by all accounts, bear this in mind, this king in his context, in his culture, in his era had pretty much everything a person could desire. He was bright, he was extremely wealthy, he'd been successful in his military campaigns and he had unfettered power. And he probably had some good cooks working for him and some cool cars in the driveway and all sorts of great stuff at his disposal. He was at the top of his game. What more could a guy ask for, except for maybe a shorter, more pronounceable name? He had it all. And yet, despite his grandeur, we're going to be introduced once again to his prideful arrogance. And how does God respond to prideful arrogance? God tends to confuse the prideful. This is a critical event in that it's another dream. God gives him a dream. He has no idea what it means. He's confused. He's perplexed. The passage goes on to say, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So let me just summarize, just for the sake of time without reading at all, the content of his dream. He sees a dream with a giant, beautiful tree in it. The tree has beautiful leaves and it has all kinds of fruit. And the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air find refuge in and under this tree. But then someone comes from heaven, a watcher, an angel of God, and the tree is cut down, and the animals flee, and the birds fly away, and a bronze chain is attached to the stump of the tree. And he wakes up and he's like, well, What was that all about? What does that mean? What's the interpretation of the dream? So in typical Nebuchadnezzar style, he calls all of his experts. Now, we do understand that our worldview in the West is different than the ancient worldview in Mesopotamia, but they're still largely humanistic worldviews. So in the West, our experts, if we have a problem, we call upon our experts, right? We call upon the technocrats, the paid government employees. We call upon the PhDs, the medical authorities, the legal experts. We call upon the science community. We hear that a lot. Science, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. That's actually a creed. If you you listen to it properly, that's a creed. Trust the science, trust the science. Trust the science with regard to human origins. Trust the science with regard to your biotic identity. Trust the science with regard to when to close your church. That's a creed. You need to hear it as such. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, they weren't scientized, but they had a certain magical view of the world. So his experts were the satraps, the prefix, the the astrologers that read the stars, the magicians, the enchanters. So different worldview, different kinds of experts, but the experts nonetheless. He calls his experts, his motley crew of gentlemen. Now they arrived in chapter three and couldn't interpret the dream, but for some reason he calls them again. In Daniel 3, he calls God's main man, and Daniel arrives, and instead of asking him to reveal the content of the dream, Daniel, uh, or the interpretation of the dream, Daniel reveals both the content and the interpretation. And he does the same in this particular instance. So in verse 18, skipping down, he states, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, Belteshazzar, So don't mistake Belteshazzar for Belshazzar. Belshazzar we're going to meet in chapter five. He's the new king that follows Nebuchadnezzar. But Belteshazzar is the the Babylonian eyes name of Daniel. As part of their attempts to assimilate him, they give him a a name that reflects their their pagan gods. But we know him as Daniel. Oh, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom, surprise, surprise, We're not able, shall we insert again, to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, earlier he said the most high God, now he's saying the spirit of the holy God. So is he a monotheist or a polytheist? Is he one God or many? Well, evidently his bent was towards polytheism, but because the first few verses summarize what he's going to learn by the end of it, he's more of a convinced monotheist. (laughs) Now, whether he lived that out and was actually converted, who knows. But this is, this is an explanation for his language. Now, based upon the historical accounts of Nebuchadnezzar's life, and I'm talking about outside of the Bible. So this event is recorded in the Bible. Obviously, it wouldn't be apropos for Babylonian historians at the time to record in their text that the most mighty king on the planet was about to be humbled and lost his marbles for seven years. So this isn't recorded in Babylonian literature. But we do know that in and around 582 and then again in uh, 568, there's a period of time where there's, there's no real record of what he's, what he's doing as a Babylonian king. So this would be, in all likelihood, the prime time in and around this time, sort of near, shortly before he died, where he, he goes through this, this event that we're about to, to read. And essentially, Daniel says to him that this tree represents his arrogance and his pride. All the nations of the earth found refuge under him. Because of his arrogance, God's gonna cut him down. And for seven years, he literally is going to live as a madman. So before we get to that, Just a few interesting points to draw from this text. Number one, you would think that he would know better. This isn't his first encounter with Daniel. This isn't his first encounter with the Most High God. Why is it that people are slow learners when it comes to submission to the true and living God? Why is it that even in our present society, we don't seem to be able to learn from history? History repeats itself. We've gone through this kind of stuff before. Why are we so slow to learn the lessons that God wants us to learn? Why is humanity, if we're so intelligent and so bright and so progressive, not finally said, okay, you know what? Yes, there is a true and living God and we're gonna follow him because when we do, nations prosper and families flourish and life is better. Why? Because we are totally depraved. That's why. We're totally depraved. We have a natural bent away from God. Many, even in the Christian church, don't like to hear that because they want to take at least a little bit of credit for their salvation and their goodness and their righteousness. Well, Romans 3 exposes that. It says there is no one who seeks after God, so much for seeker-sensitive churches, and there's no one who understands so much for our enlightenment. By nature... By nature, we are literally rebels without a cause. That's who we are. We just want to run the other direction. I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again. Observe little children. They just know how to sin from very early on. You don't have to teach them. They just know how to fight, whine, cry, and pout steal their buddies' toys. We're all like that. Some grew up to be serial killers. Some grew up to be supposedly outstanding citizens, but we're all sinners by nature. And without the Lord converting us and his spirit empowering us and his word obeyed, that's the direction we go. And this is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar as well. He's humbled, but he grows prideful. Secondly, he, suffer, he suffers from what we would call like a psychiatric or psychological illness. They call this boanthropy, where a person thinks they're an, an, a, a, a cow or an ox or a bull. And this is part of his, his uh, punishment from God. And third, when you read the language, seven periods of time in the text, this refers to seven years that he loses his mind. And during that period of time, it's, it illustrates the futility of the human mind apart from the sustaining presence of God and also the perfection, seven is often a number attached to perfection, the perfect way in which God humbles us. And the overwhelming message of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation is the futility of human wisdom and human power and human authority apart from God. This is clearly presented to us. So look at verse 19 and following, where having humiliated and humbled Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's then called upon to interpret the dream. And while Nebuchadnezzar's confused, look at the contrast. Nebuchadnezzar's confused. He's powerful, but he's confused. What does this dream mean? Contrast that to the slave, effectively a slave who has insight and humility. You can see the contrast in the text. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. Now bear in mind, he's probably been serving this king for 30 to 40 years by now. So he's got to know him well. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation interpretation for your enemies. What is Daniel doing? Is he schmoozing? Is he schmoozing? Is Daniel a schmoozer? Is Daniel reluctant to tell the king the real meaning of the dream because he's concerned about maybe being thrown into a fiery furnace or thrown into a lion's den? No, Daniel has already proven his grit. Daniel has a galvanized faith, but it would seem best to understand that perhaps there's a couple of dynamics going on here. Daniel was a human and he was saddened when he learned of Nebuchadnezzar's pending fate. When when he heard from God this message that Nebuchadnezzar was about to be humbled, his heart went out for the man. And by the way, as much as we might be angry, frustrated, frustrated, ticked off at those that would abuse their authority today, whether it's your boss, your ex-pastor, your prime minister, your premier, whatever. We also need to understand they are humans made in the image and likeness of God. And our ultimate heart's desire is that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's happened before, folks, and it can happen again. Wouldn't it be cool if, if God did that in our own country? Like talk about giving God the glory because we know that's where it would ultimately come from. So Daniel wasn't afraid of the punishment or demotion or death. He was saddened for the man and probably had somewhat of a relationship with him after having served him for so long. But nevertheless, Daniel understood that he was God's prophetic voice in Babylon. And if you are God's prophetic voice, you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So to those of you that open your mouth and teach, you're a small group leader. You're a discipleship leader. You counsel people. You're called upon to give advice. You instruct your children. You preach. You teach. If you are a prophetic voice warning the people of God or the godless to submit to God, don't hold back. You might not be liked, You might be yelled at on social media. Woo! People may not want to hang around with you anymore, but you speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth out of love for God and, of course, love for those that God has put in front of you. So Daniel speaks the truth and explains to the king that this tree, a tree being powerful and strong, trees generally outlive us, this tree is a symbol of power, And God was going to come and he was going to chop Nebuchadnezzar down and he would remain felled, a felled ruler, a fallen ruler until he recognized the ultimate rulership of God. I would say that that probably took guts on Daniel's part to confront the king in this way. It's a gutsy but sad prophecy at the same time. Now, while we have not received necessarily these kinds of precise prophecies to deliver to our own rulers, nevertheless, we have the broad ethos of scripture. We can actually remind our own rulers, maybe not of the specifics of their fate, but we can remind our own rulers that they also will be held to account or judged by God. It's like, no, that's not our job. No, we don't do that. Many Christians seem to think that it's inappropriate for the Christian church to ever confront the abuse of power. Well, Daniel does. In Psalm, chapter, or Psalm 2, never say Psalm chapter. There's no chapters in the Psalms. Psalm 2, 9 to 11, the psalmist says, you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, plural, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. In Revelation 16:14, an eschatological vision about God's dominion over the kings of the earth, we read that one day God will do battle with the kings of the earth who align themselves with the things of darkness. You bless the kings of the earth when you say, you sir, or you ma'am, have transgressed your sphere of authority. You fail to bow the knee. You fail to understand that you are a co-regent. That you are a steward of your office. When authority breaches its boundaries, overflows its banks, it's a blessing to confront authority. Would we not agree it's a blessing to confront a husband that's smacking his wife around? That's a breach of authority. Would we not agree that it would be appropriate for a church to confront its pastor if it was tyrannizing its people, abusing his people? Of course we would. So why do we have such a problem with confronting civil authority who transgress their own boundaries and act like gods over the Christian church and over people's lives, violating the 10 commandments? We're called to work six days and rest on the seventh. No, you can't work at all. We're called to gather weekly and worship God. You're not allowed to gather and worship. Why do we have a problem confronting that kind of abuse of authority? It's biblical. The great heroes of our faith like Daniel did it. It takes guts, might not go so well for you, but it's fair game. So with this in mind, we too should take an interest in speaking to the rulers of our own day, the judgment will be theirs if they rule in a godless way. The problem is we haven't done it for so long, they're a little shocked at our behavior. But I do take the view that this is not only our right, but also our responsibility to bear forth God's standards, even into a supposedly secular culture. Daniel spoke the truth graciously to his pagan rulers, so should we. To do otherwise is to fail to care for the souls of our rulers or to chicken out on making them aware that God will judge and hold them accountable for their actions. And by the way, their response isn't your responsibility. Their response isn't your responsibility. You speak the truth and you let God do what God's going to do. When you speak the truth, you might just be heaping judgment upon them. Or when you speak the truth, God might use your words to bring about redemption and repentance. But you're not the Holy Spirit and I'm not the Holy Spirit. We allow God to do what only God can do. Well, taking Daniel's example further, what is his advice to the ruler? He says, having interpreted the dream, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins, this is verse 27, by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. It's interesting that out of all the sins that Daniel could identify, he identifies sins that are very specific to civil authority. God has given civil authority the sword to oversee public justice to punish the evildoer and to reward the righteous. That's your snapshot of the responsibilities of civil government. And evidently, Nebuchadnezzar not done that. He was not practicing righteousness. He was not showing mercy to the oppressed. And therefore, God was going to shorten his reign, his prosperity. So even though God is is judge, we see here, The gospel on display because God is through Daniel saying, look, buddy, this is what's going to happen to you. But at the same time, there is an escape plan available. Repent, cast off your unrighteousness. We don't want to see your demise. We're not anti-authority. We're just anti-godless authority. So God here offers this man not only judgment, but he also offers him mercy. And by the way, you have to get both down if you're going to preach properly. You cannot preach judgment, judgment, wrath, wrath, judgment, wrath, judgment, wrath, without grace, mercy, grace, mercy, and love. You can't do it. Otherwise, you're tyrannical as a preacher. And you'll drive people to despair or into legalism, trying to appeal or appease their way into God's good books. But nor can you make the mistake, which is probably the greater mistake in our culture, just preach love, mercy, grace, Love preach, preaching love, mercy, and grace without preaching damnation, judgment, hellfire, wrath. You have to preach both. Both of them are part of Daniel's sermon here. The justice of God and the loving mercy of God. So if there's sin in your own life, by the way, just to make it very personal, if there's sin in your own life, You shouldn't expect to get away with it forever either. Your sins will eventually find you out. You'll eventually be exposed. God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar and his sovereign plan to act foolishly for a long time. It's like, enough's enough. So don't think that your sins, and I shouldn't think that my sins will not be outed by God and that God will not deal with them. So then we have God weakening the prideful. Sadly, this king failed to listen. And so we read in verse 29 that at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. We have peaked roofs. They had flat roofs. So he's walking out on the roof of his house. And the king answered, and listen, listen to his, this is where you, you, you catch a glimpse of his heart. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, waiting for the lightning bolt to strike. And sure enough, as he declares out loud his arrogance, his pride, his conceit, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Now I would argue that the greatest punishment that Nebuchadnezzar received in his seven years of insanity was the fact that he was forced to be a vegan. But anyway, (laughs) he's eating grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. By the way, if you're a vegan, you are loved. (laughs) You don't need to get up and leave the church, relax a little bit. Seven years of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Hmm. That's sovereignty there. Immediately, without delay. So he's speaking it. Immediately the voice descends. There's no delay. Immediately the punishment is doled out. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, a castrated bull. Running around in his, on all fours. He lost his marbles, lost his mind, went crazy. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. It's lived outside in the, in the elements, exposed, until his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. You can picture it in your own mind. This regal, majestic king now looks like a crazy animal running around in the wild on all fours with long, scraggly, matted, flea-infested hair, dirty fingernails and toenails all overgrown with dirt and grime under them. And first, not a week, not a month, not a year, not two years, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven years. He lives this way. And notice again, it's upon his declaration of prideful arrogance that the text says, immediately, the word was fulfilled. What God said happens. When God says he will judge sin, he will judge sin. When God says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, it will happen. It will happen. God has never broken his promise, never broken his word. Here's the thing, folks, wise men are fools unless they possess God's wisdom. By nature, we're not smart. You might have taken an IQ test and compared to the person next to you scored score 20 points higher. You're not smart. If you don't understand God and God's wisdom and you don't learn to process things through a God-centered worldview, you're not smart. Why why do you think it is that we hear so much nonsense being spewed out of the mouths of supposed, supposed experts and leaders? You saw Matt Walsh's documentary? He's interviewing a professor in the old days. Well, professor, ooh, let's bow down. Simple question, what is a woman? Can't answer the question. The most powerful woman on the planet, Kamala Harris, in July. Hello, everybody, I'm Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I'm wearing a blue jacket and sitting in a chair. What? Like, what is this nonsense? Well, it's, it's an illustration that people lose their minds when they walk away from the God of truth, the God of clarity. When you distance yourself from God, you don't go towards intelligence, knowledge, wisdom, and insight. You go towards futility, stupidity, insanity, and that's what we're seeing in our culture. And the more people move away from God, the more laws are based upon a figment of someone's imagination, the more we allow people to create their own identities with no input from the God who created you, the crazier it gets. And it's both laughable and sad at the same time. God humbles him in an extreme way. And there's a reminder to us, even as Christians, we're tempted to get a little cocky, to brag about our accomplishments, to strut our stuff, watch out, or your humiliation is at hand. Because as the text reminded Nebuchadnezzar, it also reminds us, God's the one that installs kings. It's his sovereign prerogative. doesn't mean he always installs good ones because in his sovereign prerogative, he has certain purposes that aren't always evident to us. And sometimes he installs tyrants because he wants to do a refining work in his church or whatever it is he wants to do. But it's, it's, a, it's a good reminder that we cannot ever take credit for who we are. It's, it's such a temptation. People take credit. For who they are. They they think they're hot stuff because they're a great athlete. Oh, did you decide your genetics? People take pride in their skin tone. Oh, did you decide that? People take credit in their, their works, their intellect, their skills, their people skills, their wealth. Like I, I didn't pick the country I was born into. I had nothing to do with my conception. I had nothing to do with my physique. I had nothing to do with my culture, my language. I had nothing to do with my salvation. Anything that's good in me is is from God. Why is it that so often we take pride in things we're not even responsible for? It's ridiculous. Nebuchadnezzar was installed by God for a purpose. He blew it. And we need to be careful then too that we do not allow arrogance and pride in our own lives Thinking, for example, that we deserve more attention in a relationship than someone else does or wanting to be the center of attention or bragging about our own accomplishments or belittling others or using our offices to abuse people. Talk about revolting. Even in ministry, folks, we have to be careful about this in ministry, in Christian ministry. There's this weird notion that some people have that if I can just climb the proverbial ladder of authority in the church, I'm gonna feel better about myself and people are gonna feel better about me. It's like, oh, it's gross. It's gross when people take an opportunity gifted to them by God and abuse it for their own selfish gain. It's gross and we need to avoid it at all costs. So if you, have, if you want an assignment this week, maybe there's going to be a time when you're in a conversation and there's an opportunity to sort of you know, drop a little uh, word or so to try to get attention or brag a little bit or boast a little bit. Be aware of that. Stop yourself and compliment the other person. Ask the other person a question. There's nothing more exhausting than being in a conversation with someone who's just telling you all about themselves. Who, who clearly their, their entire world revolves around them. And I'm not talking about being all super spiritual either. You know, that, that's, that's gross as well. You know, about super spiritual person that's, that really wants to brag, but they're framing it up in such a way that it sounds spiritual. Hey, let me tell you what God's done in my life. Let me tell you about all my accomplishments, but praise Jesus for it. We know what you're doing It's gross. (laughs) So we literally give glory to God. And if this becomes your way of life where you're complimenting others, you're thinking about others, God would be exalted. And by the way, you will, by definition, be blessed. Well, the good news is found at the end of this chapter where God restores the humble. He judges. He's a God of wrath. He's a God that cracks the whip, but there's also grace. There's mercy. There's forgiveness. So after seven years of his vegan diet and acting like an ox, the Bible says that at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Oh, so he lifted up his eyes, which is a sign in scripture of humility, acknowledging God, lifting up your eyes. Remember that passage, lifting your eyes up to the hills from where your help comes from. Closing your eyes is fine too, but it's not really found in the Bible. The Bible speaks of lifting up your eyes, opening your eyes, gazing upon God. That's that's a biblical posture of worship. My reason returned to me and I blessed the most high. So now he's speaking like a monotheist and praised and honored him who lives forever. This is good Orthodox theology. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Not 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 only is he just sovereign over the planet, he's sovereign over the celestial bodies as well. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, none, none can question God. None can legitimately accuse God. We may try that when we're struggling. Lord, why me? Why did you allow a good man to suffer in this way? Well, it's, in, it's okay to ask that question if you legitimately want God to reveal, but if it's accusatory, out of bounds. Now, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. The very things that he was called upon to repent of, he's now attributing to God. So what's the source of righteousness and justice for the oppressed? God. You, you will never understand justice apart from God. The whole social justice movement in our culture, the godless social justice movement, all smoke and mirrors. You, you, you don't even understand justice apart from God. If you don't know God, you don't understand justice. God alone is the source of justice and righteousness, the definition of it, the one who defines it, the one who puts the boundaries on it. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So after a very long vegan diet, And I know it's not in the text, but I'm certain his first meal was a big old T-bone steak. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar finally bowed the knee to God. He lifts up his eyes. He recognizes God's rightful rule. God restores his sanity and enables him to worship. By the way, do you believe that God has the capacity to restore the mind? I personally don't think a lot of Christians believe that. You think, oh, God can restore the heart. But if I have a mental problem, it's for life. God can't restore my mind. Yes, he can. God can restore the mind. If God can make the lame to walk, the blind to see, and the dead to come out of graves, he can restore the mind too. doesn't mean he always does in his sovereign plan. It might be the thorn in your flesh that humbles you but God can restore the mind. And God restores this man's mind as he humbles himself under God. Now, if your mind is not problematic from a secular perspective, you'll still never be the thinker you could or should be if you deny God. There'll always be confusion, there'll always be ignorance. in the mind of the most organically intelligent unbeliever. There will always be confusion and there will always be ignorance because a whole part of their worldview is missing. So this is why I've said it before, you can increase your capacity to think, your clarity of thought, when you surrender yourself to God. When you digest this book and you start to understand God's truth, who God is, who you are, what your identity is, where you're going, what you should do and not do, say and not say, think and not think, your mind is clarified. This is one of the blessings. It's not just, oh, I feel more in love with God. Stinking thinking is cast aside as we are Love, as, as we love God with mind, soul, body, and strength. This man experienced that. His men go out, seek him out, and return him to his kingdom. This is a demonstration of the mercy and restorative work of God. The message of the text, then, is the bigger your ego gets... The smaller your eyes are for God, but the bigger your eyes are for God, the smaller your ego gets. And the better off you will be and the more God will be glorified. So God rules everything, regardless of whether we like it or not. If you haven't bowed the knee yet, you're just delaying the inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's amazing, though, how many people They just don't want to think about it. I preached a funeral on Friday. And I said to those that are there, one day there will be a bulletin printed and your death date will be on it. But why is it that so many people just don't want to think about that? I've talked to funeral directors on the way to funeral homes, talking to them about spiritual things. What do you think happens to the body after you die? Oh, they start talking about the biology of decomposition. That's not what I'm talking about. They don't want to think about it. They're experiencing death every day. They don't want to think about it. Folks, we all have an expiry date. We're all going to die. Why would you not think about that? It's a reality. Why would you not think about that? It's amazing how so often we just deny things that are patently obvious. If you've heard it said, and you know it to be true, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Why wouldn't you do that like now? Why delay the inevitable? So don't just hear the word, respond to the word. And when you do, life will be a lot smoother for you. And God will also be glorified as a result. So let's live humbly under the rightful rule of God and let him lift us up in his due time.